as we look at some of the the greatest, most beloved um, epic stories throughout human history, throughout literature, um, there are certain patterns that that people, scholars, writers have have noticed. Um, and, And one of those kind of patterns or templates is this idea that the main character, the hero, will go on a, a, a hero's journey, uh, as it's called. And this kind of a template for a narrative shows up in all kinds of classic stories, everything going back to Homer's Odyssey uh, to, to even something like Star Wars. And usually in, in the first act of this kind of hero's journey, hero's quest, the main character inevitably meets up with some sort of a mentor figure. And this, this older mentor figure provides them with the inspiration, with, with the knowledge, perhaps, and training, and sometimes with the tools that they are going to need in order to meet the challenge that's in front of them. So we could think of, you know, the Pevensey children in Narnia, given their gifts by Father Christmas, a sword and a shield, a bow and arrow, a uh, magical horn, a dagger, and a, and a cordial. Um, Harry Potter and his friends have to, to go and collect the, the three Deathly Hallows. Luke Skywalker, right, famously is given his father's lightsaber by this old, this old kind of grizzled mentor figure, and he's trained how to use it. Well, in this morning's scripture passage, we actually have an older mentor who is providing a young man, a young leader, with, with the inspiration, with the knowledge that he is going to need in order to face a significant challenge. And it's, it's a real challenge. It's a real threat. It's, it's something that threatens to, to destroy, to harm the people that he loves. So if you were in this situation, what would you hope to be given? What would you be just on the edge of your seat hoping uh, to be to handed down by this mentor figure? Would, would you be hoping for... Yeah. A weapon for, for some, some kind of elixir that would just solve your problems? Well, in our passage today, young Timothy, this pastor, he's given instruction, he's given counsel by his mentor, Paul. And he doesn't get any, any physical objects, uh, doesn't get a weapon, he doesn't get an, an elixir, he doesn't get a wand. But he's given some really valuable information and in particular, what we're going to see is he's, he's given three kind of word pictures, three illustrations that almost serve as a sort of a map, a map that will guide him along in his mission, will guide him in dealing with this challenge. So just uh, for a little bit of context, for a little bit of review, we are picking back up in a series in 2 Timothy, and this is the, the fourth sermon, the fourth message in a seven-part series um, during the, the kind of the Tanzania trip in August, we'll get to, to finish up this letter. But Second Timothy was written uh, by the Apostle Paul to a younger pastor, Timothy, and he's really providing final instructions, not just for his, his kind of son in the faith, Timothy, but also really for the church itself in a future without Paul, the great church-planting apostle. And so in the opening chapter of this letter, Paul charged Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to guard it, to protect it. And then in the start of chapter 2, he called Timothy to the hard task of of entrusting the gospel, handing it down to future generations, and enduring suffering and hardship 
in order to share the gospel. And through all of it, putting his hope firmly in the faithfulness of Christ. And so in today's passage, as we continue through chapter 2 of Second uh, Timothy, Paul gets really specific about some of the hard work that Timothy is called to, some of the challenges he faces. And in particular, there are false teachers who are going to wreak havoc, already have begun wreaking havoc in the church, and they must be stopped. And so Timothy will need to stand firm. He'll need to oppose them using the, the truth, the truth of God's word, but he also needs to do it in a manner of, of righteousness and gentleness. So let's go ahead and read from 2 Timothy uh, 2, verse 14, and that's found in page 995 of the, the Blue Pew Bibles. But 2 Timothy 2, 14, and then through the end of the chapter. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So here in this passage, as I mentioned earlier, Paul provides these kind of three illustrations, these three word pictures to, to instruct, to guide Timothy on how he is to oppose this false teaching. And so those three things, which we'll kind of walk through um, one by one, is first, in verses 14 through 19, he's to oppose false teaching as God's approved worker. God's approved worker. And then in, uh, in verses 20 through 23, he's to oppose false teaching as the master's useful vessel. And then finally in 24 through 23, 24 through 26, he's to oppose false teaching as the Lord's gentle servant. So it's God's approved worker, the master's useful vessel, and the Lord's gentle servant. So first of all, in the opening verses, Timothy is to oppose false teaching as God's approved worker. Paul uses this picture of a skilled worker 
who has no need to be ashamed of his work. You imagine a, you know, a builder or a, or a craftsman. Uh, Paul himself was a tent maker and, and would make, um, presumably using leather and cloth and, and uh, kind of stitching things together. He could take pride in his work. Um, but a skilled worker who has no need to be ashamed because, in this case, it's his right handling of the word of truth That is what what shows him to be approved by God. So actually in verse 14, initially Paul instructs Timothy, remind the whole church, remind the whole congregation of the truth and warn them against this. Warn them against fruitless controversies and debates. These false teachers who are troubling Timothy's church, the Ephesian church, um, it's described in 1 Timothy 6.4 as, as that they crave controversy. They crave controversy and quarreling about words. They enjoy, it could almost be literally translated, word battles. Uh, these useless disputes, Paul says, they ruin the hearers. And this word here, ruin, in the Greek is katastrophe, which is where we get catastrophe, right? It literally means to turn upside down. So, these quarrels are turning their hearers upside down. That's the complete opposite of edification, right? Edification is to build up. This, this turns people upside down. And of course, you know, one can't help but think of uh, the, the many and, and seemingly endless controversies and arguments uh, that take place online, uh, certainly socially, politically, but also theologically and among Christians and uh, and sometimes those are just not really the, the fruitful battles that are going to edify God's people uh, in too many cases. But Timothy, on the other hand, in contrast, he is to apply himself in order to present himself to God as one approved, in verse 15, as a worker who has no need to be ashamed, one who rightly handles the word of truth. And this rightly handling, it gives the sense of, of cutting a straight path um, in, the, in the Greek uh, Old Testament, the Septuagint, the, the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, uh, in Proverbs 3, 6, right, the verse that says, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. That same word is used. So the idea of, of making a straight path, uh, one commentator likens it to, to cutting a path in a straight direction. So for, for God's faithful worker who's handling the word of God, it just means to be accurate and to be plain, not to, to veer off to the left or the right. And so the word of truth here is, is always used by Paul to refer to the gospel. So, for instance, in Colossians 1.5 and Ephesians 1.13. So it's, it's the gospel. It's the clear, right, faithful proclamation and communication of the gospel that will give God's worker no cause to be ashamed and it will effectively combat and, and oppose error and false teaching. Now, while Paul charges Timothy to be a good worker, the false teachers are examples of, of bad workers. Instead of making a straight path, Paul says they've swerved from the truth. And their talk is likened to irreverent babble in verse 16. And really, this word babble, it takes us all the way back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, Right? where God frustrates sinful human ambition. He confuses the people's language. 
And the result is, is that everyone is, is babbling. They can't understand one another. You see, to lose unity of language and, and purpose, to simply be incoherently quarreling over words, and, and to fail to understand others and fail to be understood, this is a sign of God's judgment. That's what we see in Genesis 11. And so it should not be so in God's spirit-filled church the church is intended to be a, a safe haven, a reversal of Babel, where, where words are spoken to build others up. And those words are clearly understood through the, through the help and the guidance of the Holy Spirit uh, in each person. And then those words build unity. Now, obviously, the final and the ultimate fulfillment of this is, is found in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and new earth. But but even today in the church is meant to be a, a reversal, an unraveling of, of the curse of Babel. So the Babel of these false teachers, it leads to ungodliness. And Paul says their talk spreads like gangrene in verse 17. This is a, a vivid and very sobering medical analogy because you know, gangrene is, is a rapidly spreading infection and it causes the the, the death of tissue in a, in a localized part of the body. And of course, if it remains untreated, it could be fatal to the entire body. You can just see the kind of the analogy for, for a church, right? For the body of Christ. So what we see here is that false teaching is not simply a matter of, of believing the right, the, of, of believing the wrong thing. Because ideas and beliefs and certainly false ideas, false beliefs, have significant consequences. They can lead to ungodly behavior. They can lead to the upsetting of faith. They can even lead to spiritual death. And Paul specifies, he names two heretics, Hymenaeus and Philetus. These men have been claiming that the resurrection has already happened in verse 18. And of course, that's understandable that that would cause people's faith to be upset. The resurrection is a core gospel doctrine. It's not a secondary or a tertiary matter. Uh, it, is, it is one of those hills to die on, to use the phrase. It's a foundational Christian teaching, and, and the heart of the gospel is in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then the implications of that for his people, for the church. Now, Paul has dealt with at least a similar heresy before. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, which, which Pastor Tanner had preached through earlier this year, there were some who were teaching there's no future resurrection of the dead. And now, we don't know in this case exactly what was being promoted in, in Timothy's church here in Ephesus. But the idea might have been that they were saying the only resurrection experience is just the spiritual reality, the spiritual rebirth that takes place in a believer's life upon conversion. And this is not in any way to minimize that. It's, it's an amazing, miraculous, uh, true reality, um, and it's fundamental to the Christian experience. But to say, if these, if these teachers were saying that, that spiritual rebirth that takes place upon conversion, that new life in Christ, there's nothing more. There's nothing more to come. There's no resurrection of our physical bodies after death. There's no embodied existence forever with God on a new earth. You see, false doctrine can be so dangerous and so deceptive exactly because it takes something that's true 
and then twists it and distorts it into something harmful. Because the New Testament does teach, Paul does teach, for instance, in, in his letter to the Romans, Romans 6, he teaches that our, our baptism pictures a spiritual reality that we can't see, a spiritual reality of our union with Christ in his death as we go down into the waters of baptism and then in his resurrection as we rise up out of those waters. And so the correct understanding, the, the orthodox understanding, is there is both a future hope of physical resurrection and there's also a present reality of new resurrection life that Christians share in and experience now. But again, the false teachers might have been claiming that the present spiritual reality is all there is, all we should expect. There's no future bodily, physical resurrection. You see, at this time period, Greek philosophy, Greek thought, and and particularly something that was called Gnosticism, um, often would exalt the spiritual and exalt the intellectual, the mind, the soul, and would despise the material world, the physical world, including our bodies. And that kind of worldview, which really continues and, and carries on to this day, in, in different ways. It undermines the goodness of God's creation because God always intended and he still intends for human beings to exist in bodies. Our material bodies are not evil. Uh, you know, understanding theology correctly is to know that sin is not a result of having a body. Sin comes from within, right? Jesus said it's a spiritual problem that proceeds from our sinful hearts. And God intends to redeem both our souls and our bodies. And the resurrection of of Jesus proves this truth. But again, notice how how Paul says that that the the talk of of these men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, it's going to lead people into more and more ungodliness. This kind of heresy, uh, like is so often the case, it can become a license for sin. Because, hey, if the body is corrupt and it's passing away, and only our souls live on forever, then what does it matter what we do with our bodies? What does it matter what we do with someone else's body? And ironically, you know, this kind of argument is, is so similar to the, the, the materialism, uh, the secularism that surrounds us today. So whether you're back in the first century with the false teachers who were saying the material world is bad and evil and it doesn't matter, so just do whatever you want with your body, or... Our, our present-day 21st century belief that, you know, we're all just animals. We're these highly evolved machines. There's no moral significance to our lives. There's no created purpose for us as human beings. There's no dignity inherently as, as image-bearers of God our Creator. Both of these views, from the 1st century to the 21st century, they, they lead to the denigration and the degradation of what God originally created as very good. But despite all this confusion, all this error and corruption, Paul wants to reassure Timothy, remember Timothy, even though there are those who are promoting twisted teachings and causing confusion and upsetting people's faith, God is not caught off guard. His purposes are not frustrated his firm foundation stands, he writes. And then he gives these two statements in verse 19. The Lord knows those who are his, 
and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This phrase, the Lord knows those who are his, comes from Numbers 16.5. This is a place in the Old Testament, um, the story of Korah's rebellion. This was a Levite, Korah, and he led a whole number of Israelites in open rebellion against Moses and his leadership. They were jealous of Moses and Aaron, uh, and they wanted the priesthood. They were already Levites, so they already had a a role to play in the worship uh, and in the tabernacle, but they wanted the priesthood for themselves as well. And so Moses called the people to an assembly, and it was in this context that he said, the Lord knows those who are his. And the Lord was going to decide, the Lord was going to reveal uh, who was in the right. And of course, the ground split apart, and Korah and his supporters were, were swallowed up by the earth. But what Paul reminds us in quoting Numbers 16.5 is that, that God's knowledge, it, it is secret and invisible to us. We, we can't see a person's heart, but God knows who is, who is faithful and right. He knows the ones who belong to him, and he's able to keep and protect his own. Even though there will be some who, who swerve away from the truth and become opponents of God's people, one day vindication will come. One day God will make plain and visible what he knew all along. But in the meantime, as we, as we struggle through our, our lives with, with truth and error, it's his word. It's his written word, his revealed word. That is the standard to measure faithfulness and unfaithfulness. It's not how eloquent or charismatic a leader might be, not how big of a crowd they can attract or how many followers they have on Instagram or views on YouTube. Scripture is the one and the only standard for a faithful minister or a faithful teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, that's why it's, it's so worthwhile. It's so valuable to study, to become skilled in understanding God's word, just as Paul urged Timothy to be able to rightly handle the word of truth. It's beneficial to spend your time, your energy, spend your money on learning how to rightly handle the word of truth. And that could look so many different ways for for those of us in in different seasons of life, different contexts. But it could mean, you know, finding a, a really good volume on systematic theology and trying to read through it. Or better yet, maybe get someone to read through it with you so you don't get bogged down and discouraged. It could mean taking a class on church history or an Old Testament or a New Testament survey. We live actually in a time of access to amazing resources. You know, you can listen to all kinds of seminary-level classes for free online, things that people would pay thousands of dollars uh, in order to to pursue uh, an MDiv or, or such. And, you know, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're young or old, whether you're hoping to go into full-time ministry or missions, or if you just want to be able to faithfully teach a Bible study, or if you just want to be a, a mature responsible, faithful church member because it's, it's so important to be able to discern between truth and lies, to know, to recognize when, when historic, biblical, sound Christian theology is being distorted or when it's being abandoned. It really is worthwhile. 
to, to study and, and develop your skill in understanding God's word. But Paul goes on to say, not only the Lord knows those who are his, he says also, everyone who names the name of the Lord departs from iniquity. And this phrase here seems to be also an allusion to Korah's rebellion, because further down in Numbers 16, Moses warns all the Israelites, depart please from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. Depart from iniquity. So the first truth was, God alone sees the heart. God alone knows those who are his, and he sovereignly keeps them and preserves them. The second truth, the second statement, is that, that those who belong to God, they, they demonstrate who they are in invisible ways. A person's deeds, the fruit, the fruit that comes from their lives, those things don't save anyone, but they can reveal the state of someone's heart. Right? Jesus in Matthew 7, 15, he taught that you'll recognize false prophets. He's, he's predicting and, and preparing his disciples for this very situation. You'll recognize false prophets by their fruits. Because a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Often, it's visible, it's evident, when those who identify with Christ, with the Lord's name, when they depart from iniquity, their, their forsaking of sin, their, their holiness, it doesn't cause them to belong to the Lord. It doesn't, it, it doesn't change their nature and make them into a healthy tree, no. But it provides a proof of their spiritual identity. It provides an evidence that they belong to Christ. And really, this, this whole idea of departing from iniquity is is the focus of the next section in this passage, the focus of our next point. And that is point two, oppose false teaching as the master's useful vessel. Strive to be a useful vessel. So in this second illustration, in verses 20 through 23, after talking about an approved worker, someone who can rightly handle the word. Now he uses analogy of vessels in a house, in a great house. So reading in verse 20, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, in 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul describes the church as the household of God. Uh, and then in, in Hebrews 9, an example of, of, of vessels uh, is, is used to describe the different instruments and the objects in the tabernacle. So, so Paul is, is essentially saying, you know, there are some instruments, there are some vessels for, for honorable and special use in God's house, in the church, and others for dishonorable or common use. And so the idea of a person cleansing themselves from what is dishonorable, within this context, this this certainly has to include distancing themselves from these false teachers, completely avoiding their their corrupt and false doctrine, as well as, as avoiding the ungodliness that results from their false teaching. And this is, this is purification. 
those who, who practice the hard work and the discipline of purifying themselves from these corrupt teachings and these immoral behaviors, they will be set apart as holy, sanctified for special use by their Lord. They'll be useful to Christ, to the master of God's household, and they will be ready for every good work. Now, again, it's important to notice what's, what's not being said uh, in this passage. This, this purification, this, this cleansing or sanctification, it's not, it's not what causes a vessel to belong in God's house. It's not uh, what, what causes a vessel to be a vessel of mercy instead of a vessel of wrath. No. But, but for the Christian who has been bought by the blood of Christ, who's been cleansed from sin, who's been justified and declared righteous and adopted as a son or daughter of the king. This kind of person has a heart that, that longs to be useful to their Lord and Master, that wants to be ready for any good work that he might call them to do. And that is the motivation, that is the grounds, the foundation for this kind of purification. And then in the, in the next verse, Paul just describes even more clearly and in, in, in more detail how Timothy should go about this, how he should cleanse himself. In verse 22, he says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Paul exhorts Timothy to flee youthful passions. And really, this, this implies not just sexual immorality, but, but in the context, it would also include the kind of obstinate and undisciplined immaturity that would, that would fuel quarrels and controversies. It would include the kind of overconfidence or pride or arrogance that would, that would lead a person uh, to, to teach false doctrine and not submit to God's word, not to submit to correction. The, the purity Timothy is to pursue uh, involves the heart, it involves the whole self, it involves being cleansed and holy, not only in relation to, to sexual morality, but also in, in word, in his speech, in worship, and in the way that others are treated. But Paul also makes it clear here that sanctification is something God intends us to pursue in community. You know, sometimes we can, uh, as individual believers, we can place all our focus on our, our private life and, and obsess about secret sins. And you know what? That's, that's a really important place to start. But it's actually too low of a standard. Because God calls us as the church to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a body made up of many members. And he calls us not only to forsake what is evil, but to pursue, to energetically run after what's good and beautiful. So how do we flee from what is sinful and destructive and wholeheartedly pursue what's righteous and good? And how do we do it together? Uh, in John Stott's commentary on 2 Timothy, he writes, This double duty of Christians, negative and positive, is the consistent repeated teaching of Scripture. Thus... We are to deny ourselves and follow Christ. We are to put off what belongs to our old life and to put on what belongs to our new life. We are to put to death our earthly desires and to set our minds on heavenly things. We are to crucify the flesh and to walk in the Spirit. It is the ruthless rejection of the one in combination with the relentless pursuit of the other 
which Scripture reveals to us as the secret of holiness. So South Canyon Baptist Church, let us be wise, let us be creative, and let us be committed and strategic in coming up with ways to to link arms and together to flee from all that is spiritually harmful and dangerous and also to pursue all that is spiritually beneficial and spiritually life-giving. So finally, not only is Timothy to to be uh, an approved worker and a useful vessel in, in his master's house, finally, point three, he is to oppose false teaching as the Lord's gentle servant in verses 23 through 26. So we have one final illustration Paul uses to instruct Timothy. He is to be a gentle, faithful servant. In verse 23, he warns Timothy again, have nothing to do with these foolish controversies. They only produce quarrels. And then he turns in verse 24. He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. One important takeaway here is that guarding the gospel and opposing this false teaching, it's motivated by love. What does this false teaching do? It ruins the hearers. It, it spreads and brings death like gangrene. It upsets people's faith. And then what is the hoped-for result when a servant of the Lord patiently teaches and gently corrects? The hoped-for result is repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That even these opponents, these ungodly and foolish people, would come to their senses would escape the snare of the devil, that they would be set free and no longer do the devil's will, but do God's will. Love is what motivates this firm commitment to guard the true gospel against false and corrupt doctrine. And we see also here that Paul is is very concerned not only with what Timothy does. He corrects his opponents He's not only concerned with the desired outcome, that they would come to a knowledge of the truth, that they would come to their senses. He's also concerned with how Timothy goes about it. Make no mistake, these these false teachers must be opposed. It is a matter of life and death. The church is under threat. The gospel is at risk of being compromised. But even then, Paul calls for kindness, patience, gentleness in correcting these adversaries. Timothy must not become an ungodly, destructive force in order to fight an ungodly, destructive force. If Timothy can't demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit as he challenges these false teachers, why would the church have confidence that he is the one in the right? If he corrects them in a quarrelsome way, then he's promoting quarreling just in the same way that they do. He's no different. If he's unkind and impatient and harsh when he's mistreated and when he's insulted, then he's, he's allowing youthful passions to control him. 
He's leading with immaturity. He's failing to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And even if his church takes his side, they, they join his camp doctrinally, and so it seems like a win, but they're also going to follow his bad example of behavior. So not only is Timothy called to be a model of godly and patient leadership, he's to teach and correct and lead from a place of hope. Paul incredibly offers hope that God could still turn the hearts of these teachers, rescue them from the traps Satan caught them in. They might come to know the truth and and so no longer be duped into doing Satan's will. God is able to grant repentance even to people we would have written off as irredeemable. And praise God, he is able to rescue those who are enemies. Otherwise, none of us could be saved. Amen? Paul knows that the great and the true enemy here is the devil. And he calls for for patience with these human opponents because he still has hope that God might grant them repentance. Now, I don't want to move on from this point today without acknowledging that there are some here in this room who have been deeply impacted by a leader who did not act like this servant in in verse 24 and 25. Maybe you had an experience with a leader, someone who was kind of empowered into a role by an organization or a church, or someone that you viewed as one of the Lord's servants, but they didn't extend that, that kindness, that patience, that gentleness toward you. And, you know, maybe it was a completely unjust and unfair attack against you, or, or maybe, maybe you were actually in the wrong. Maybe you were ignorant of something or had a, a wrong belief. Maybe there was a sin in your life that needed to be dealt with, but either way, you, you were treated with unkindness, impatience, harshness. You were not dealt with in a way that held out gospel hope for you, but you were quickly cast aside and diminished. And I, I do just want to say, I'm sorry that happened, because I know it has a profound and a lasting consequence. Anytime a shepherd, anytime one of the Lord's servants frightens or harms God's sheep in that way, it is not a reflection of the heart of Christ. In fact, it breaks our Savior's heart. If you want to see the different side of, of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, if you want to see him furious and turning over the tables, It's when spiritual leaders mistreat his children. So I I hope that you find true shepherds here at South Canyon, leaders who, who are gentle and kind and patient. That is what we pray for. That is, before God, what we strive to be. But more importantly, if you hear nothing else today, just please know that what you experience is not a reflection of who Jesus is. Because Jesus is the gentle servant of the Lord. He's the one who Paul holds up as the true model here in these verses. 
You see, there are various characters in, in the Bible who are referred to as the servant of the Lord. You know, among them would be figures like Moses, Joshua, David, even, even Mary, the mother of Jesus. But I actually don't think Paul had any of those people in mind as he wrote this description in verse 24 and 25. The true and perfect model of the servant of the Lord is Jesus Christ himself. As he was portrayed in the, the prophetic servant songs of Isaiah, this servant of the Lord who's described in Isaiah is, is one who was able to teach. The Lord gave him the tongue of those who were instructed to know how to sustain the weary with the word in Isaiah 50. This servant of the Lord was gentle and meek. He would not cry aloud or lift his voice. A bruised reed he would not break, and a faintly burning wick he would not quench in Isaiah 42. When this servant was oppressed and opposed by wicked men, he didn't resist or retaliate. But it says in Isaiah 53, he was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. And then in Matthew 11, Jesus called himself gentle and lowly in heart. He is the Lord's faithful servant who who taught the truth, who dealt gently and compassionately with the sick and the needy who came to him. And he's the servant of the Lord who gave up his life as the Lamb of God. He's the suffering servant who died on a cross to save the people he had come to serve. It's through him alone that anyone is brought to repentance and a clear knowledge of the truth. It's through him alone that anyone can escape the bondage of sin and Satan. He is the true servant of the Lord. And my only job as a pastor, as an, as an under-shepherd here in this church, is simply to proclaim Christ and him crucified. So, Christian, or if you're not a believer, whoever you may be, look to Jesus. He is the good shepherd. He is the faithful servant. And let no other vision fill your eyes. Let no other person dictate your path. Because it is in Christ, it's in Christ alone that we find life. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded this morning uh, just of the, uh, the danger of, of false beliefs and false gospels that would cause any of us to swerve away from the truth. We are, we are sobered by the need to be watchful and the need to protect and guard the gospel. But we pray as well that each and every one of us, as disciples, as as little Christs, as the word Christian means, that we would represent, that we would model the heart of our Savior towards our families, towards our co-workers, towards our neighbors and friends. God, help us uh, to be like Christ. And, And in that, to just to bring honor and glory to him and to be a light and a witness to this uh, dark and dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.